While research related to COVID-19 has dominated the headlines in terms of scientific research, hog farmers, veterinarians, and experts in the animal health industry continue to work on biosecurity principles and protocols to ward off a number of animal disease issues. One leading researcher is using some new experimental methods to advance the industry's understanding of how viruses survive in feed and feed ingredients. Welcome to Feedstuff's In Focus, our podcast taking a deeper look at big issues in the livestock, poultry, grain, and feed industries. I'm your host, Andy Vance. Thanks for joining us. This episode is sponsored by Hogslat. From cleanup to startup, Hogslat is here to supply the products you need. As close as your local Hogslat store or order online at hogslat.com. In this episode, Feedstuff's editor, Sarah Muirhead, talks with Dr. Scott D. of Pipestone Applied Research about a demonstration project conducted to evaluate viral survival in feed. A demonstration project is a new way of taking what has been learned in the lab and running a trial under more real-world conditions. In this case, D. took samples of soybean meal, conventional and organic, lysine, choline, and vitamin A that were all spiked with a mixture of PERS-174, PDV, and Seneca virus and then transported for 21 days in the trailer of a commercial transport vehicle. Samples were tested for viral genome and viability at the end of the transit period, and the project showed that three significant viral pathogens of pigs could survive in select feed ingredients during commercial transport. With more on the story, here's Sarah Muirhead. Scott, you've been looking for some years now, actually, at how feed ingredients might transport and transmit viral pathogens, such as PEDV, PERS, African swine fever, and more. With that in mind, let's talk about a new demonstration project that you recently conducted. Um, walk us through that project and explain a bit about its, its purpose. Sure. Well, thanks, Sarah. I'm glad to join you today. Um, I'm excited about this project because it's a new approach. It's a new twist. I haven't really seen it used in veterinary science before. And as you mentioned, uh, myself, Dr. Megan Niederwerder, the group at SDSU, KSU, we've done a lot of work together looking at viral survival and transmission and feed. One of the limitations of the work we've done is it's all laboratory-based. So in other words, you've got a very well-controlled laboratory environment, you've got very small samples, and you, you learn all along the way and you collect the information. One of the criticisms of that is it's, it's a very small scale, and it doesn't necessarily relate to the real world. And with the, that's a valid, very valid critique. And so I was kind of wondering what to do, how to take the next steps, and I came across uh, the concept of a demonstration project as I was researching the social sciences literature, which apparently they use quite a bit. And basically, it's 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 conducting a study under real world conditions. And so you take your laboratory approach, but you put it into the real world, and you try to demonstrate that the results you got from the lab are actually valid under real world conditions. And so that's where the name comes from, demonstration project. And that's kind of where I stumbled across it, just just a little bit frustra- frustrated in, in where do I go, where do I go next? How do I deal with the criticism? And what's the best way to address it? I thought it was a good start. It's kind of a proof of concept then, is what you're doing with this demonstration project. Yeah, I had never used this approach. I hadn't seen this approach before in the veterinary literature. 
And that's why we did use to start with in this small samples, small quantities of, of feedstuffs, just because we want to sample the entire amount to be sure we don't miss anything. That's one of the criticisms of the project that we'll talk about today and I hope to address in the next step. So you put feed ingredients in kind of what you simulated as commercial trucking mm -hmm. and you someone drove it through 14 yeah. states and uh, many, many miles. So how was it set up? How was this research project set up? Yeah, I worked with a group called Sam Nutrition out of uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and they help us with uh, responsible imports. As we bring products in from Asia to Pipestone, they, uh, they help us biosecure that material. So I had a good relationship with them. And so I had just, I had just asked them, you know, is this something we could do? Could we take one of your trucks and put feed ingredients, like you said, spike them with virus, put them in the truck, and drive them around the United States with a, a designated route to similar, simulate a, a real uh, journey that a, a transport vehicle would take in the continental United States. And so they were very interested in helping and I really appreciate their, their insight to their help and their resources. So that's kind of what the group was that I was working with, with Sam Nutrition out of Minneapolis. How was the route determined is, was there any logic to it or it was like we need to be out this amount of time and we need to be in these areas or kind of how was that set up? Yeah, uh, we, we thought a lot about that. I, I wanted a, a real life journey. You know, I wanted I wanted a journey that a, a real trucker would take if they if he or she was delivering materials to the to the across the United States, where might they go? So that was part one. Let's make it real. Two, let's expose the viruses and the feed ingredients to as many different climates or environments in our continental US as we can. So we did this in February and March, and I wanted to drive around the US and kind of touch as many parts of our country that I could. I wanted to go cold, hot, dry, humid, and just to make sure that the viruses in the feed and the feed itself got exposed to all these different uh, climates, so to speak during the journey. So that's so then the, the company, Sam Nutrition, came up with the route and uh, it looked cool to me. So we went for it. So how many total miles? It was about 6,000 total miles, uh, 21 days. It uh, I think it was 107 hours of actual transit where it was the truck was actually moving and we crossed over 14 different states. So we we really tried to hit a lot of the United States at, from the continental level, and uh, I think we did it. Did you test then as you went through these different climates, or was it at the end you tested to see where everything was at? The goal of the study was to see if the viruses would live in feed ingredients during this type of a real-world demonstration journey. So at the end of it all, we did our testing. Okay. Uh, however, during the journey, we recorded... Uh, temperature and relative humidity, just to kind of make sure that we did, you know, encounter cold temperatures, very hot temperatures, et cetera. So as well as moist and dry. So we were collecting information all the way, but we did our final assessment of viability at the end of the 21 day study. Do you think that um, time of year is a factor, temperature, humidity, all of that? Definitely. Um, viruses like cooler temperatures. They like humid temperatures that's a general statement but uh, they don't really like warm conditions and so i want but i wanted to stress them a bit 
I wanted to see, you know, in a, in a real journey, if this was actually happening and feed was moving around the U.S. and it was potentially contaminated, would the viruses actually survive independent of where they went? Could the feed ingredients protect them? See if they could survive, basically, so they could make it through. And what did you find? Well, we started, um, let's see, we used PERS virus 174, which everyone knows is the, the most uh, representative variant of that virus today in the U.S. We used PED which was the original virus we worked with when it came over from Asia back in 2014, 2013. And we used Seneca virus A because Seneca virus is such a good surrogate for foot and mouth disease virus. It's in the same uh, virus group. So we wanted to kind of have a little bit of foreign animal disease flair in this project as well. And so that's why we put Seneca. And Seneca has, has survived very well in our laboratory experiments in, in many of the feed ingredients that we've done in the past. So. We took those three viruses, we put them into organic soybean meal and conventional soybean meal, which we have shown to be very protective for viruses at the laboratory level, lysine, choline, and vitamin A. And basically what we found was several of the viruses uh, lived very well. For example, Seneca survived the entire journey in all the ingredients. Uh, some of the ingredients were very protective. Soy, for example, all the, all the viruses survived very well in the soy. Not always the case in the other ingredients. So Seneca was very stable and soy was very protective, which was similar to what we've reported in the past. And we had PED and, and per survival, again, in soy, but not always in the other ingredients. And so it, it kind of depended on the virus type. It also depended on the ingredient. But it kind of showed what we uh, published in the past this high-risk combination of the right virus plus the right ingredient could uh, result in extended viability over time. So yeah, the viruses lived very nicely in several of the ingredients throughout this, I think, very challenging real-world demonstration project. So to me, it validated what we had published in the past and then, of course, continued to raise the awareness that the industry needs to pay attention to in regards to feed as a vehicle for moving viral pathogens domestically, I think also as, as well as via the transboundary route. Would you say there are any limitations to this research? Anything you would do differently if you were to do it again? And are you going to do it again? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. The, the primary limitation was the quantity of feed ingredients we used. We started with 30 gram quantities, which is a very small amount of feed. We did that because when I wanted to do my testing, I wanted to test the entire amount because this was proof of concept. I didn't know how it would work. I didn't want to have a, make the mistake of missing the virus if I just took a little bit of the feed. So I took the entire 30 grams and I had multiple replications and things you can talk about if you want. And, and we tested by swine bioassay. So we processed the feed. We injected the pigs either orally or in the mus intramuscularly, and we looked at whether they got infected or not. We are going to do this again. And what we're going to do this time is we are going to use one ton totes of the soy products. We're going to focus on the soy products because they were so protective. But we're going to use tons of soy, not just 30 grams. They're going to be totes, one ton each, that we're going to spike with virus we're going to go through the journey, then we're going to test that for viability as well. See if we can find the virus in the tote material 
again, test it to see if it's alive in pigs uh, by bioassay. The other twist we're going to put into this, Sarah, is we're going, to, we're going to also include complete feed. So we're going to take several tons of complete feed, spike it as well, then we're going to feed that to finishing pigs in our research facilities. So we're going to actually not just look at swine bioassay, where we purposely inject virus samples to see if they're alive. We're going to let the pigs eat the complete feed and see whether they pick up the infection through the natural feeding behavior. So we're going to address a few limitations here, size of volume of sample, and then uh, route of administration. Bioassay, very small, very sensitive. And then groups of pigs actually consuming the complete feed to see if they get infected. And the complete, so. feed, <laughs> complete feed is manufactured after the journey. It's not taken on the journey. We're actually going to take it on the journey. You are. Okay. Yeah, we're going to we're going to put we're going to organize uh, one ton soy totes and one ton complete feed totes and put them on the same truck, go through the same route, uh, do it at the end of the year. Then we're going to let that put that complete feed in one of our research facilities and let the pigs eat that complete feed, demonstrating transmission if possible under natural feeding behavior, which I think is a, a really cool twist that we'll put on this other than the bioassay approach to determine survivability. So we're going to mix it up a little bit, but it'll, it'll still follow the same demonstration approach, the same uh, journey, uh, a little different season. We hope to repeat it and uh, see if we can learn more. Interesting, very interesting approach. What about other things that you're doing? Like, like we mentioned, you've been doing a lot of research in this area. Are there other projects that are underway that would interest our listeners? Well, um, but my, myself and uh, Dr. Megan Niederwerder are working very hard on, on feed additives as mitigants for viral contaminated ingredients. And so uh, I'm, doing, I'm doing work with uh, PERS and Seneca again, looking at different additives to the diets and which, which additives can reduce those viruses. She's looking at African swine fever because she can work with that virus in her laboratory. So between the two of us, we're, we're doing a lot of work right now on uh, feed mitigation through the addition of a, a commercial product that's either on the market now or it's in the pipeline, so to speak, that producers can use at their mills or at their farms. So the two of us are working closely on kind of more of a, uh, a preventative. What do we do about this? You know, we've shown survival many different ways. Uh, now what do we do about it? So that's why we're trying to look at approaches we can help producers take uh, by identifying multiple options for them. Look at it, many different products, which ones really work, which ones don't work, what's the cost, what's the, you know, feasibility of use in the mill, uh, what's the, you know, the price point and things that the producers can use to make decisions. What's your message at this point, knowing everything that you know for the hog industry and for the feed and feed ingredient industry when it comes to these viruses? Do you have like an overall message? Yes, we have to develop a national program to manage this risk. The producers are doing a good job, I think, you know, setting up their responsible import plans where they'll bring ingredients into storage facilities and hold them. They could add a mitigant and reduce the risk. I think the industry itself is doing a good job of, of, uh, of organizing individual by companies, primarily biosecurity plans for their ingredients. 
But I think we need more of a national approach. I think we need USDA, FDA. We all have to work together. And we have to look at potentially managing these high-risk ingredients from high-risk countries, i.e. restricting or banning or some type of management of the products so we can reduce the risk of, say, soy that we bring in from China, which we now know that uh, everything seems to live in soy. And we, we're bringing stuff in from China. And so we ha- I think we have to do something about that. There's only so much the producers can do on their own. We have to have a more comprehensive countrywide approach to parallel what's been done in Canada, where they've adapted adopted from all the work we've done. They've adopted a, uh, a national program for managing their, their feed imports from high-risk countries. So credit Canada. We have to do the same thing. But the good thing for producers is there's there's things they can do there's information now, there's things they can do individually within their own farms, within their companies, but I'd like to see it unified across governmental agencies as well as the swine industry. Are we partway through that process or is that something that really needs to get started? I think the the discussions are underway. Obviously COVID has slowed everything down, Um, but I know National Pork Producers Council, National Pork Board, they're doing a really good job of trying to communicate that to USDA, to FDA, and the the governmental agencies are aware of this issue. And they're looking at the information as we get more data, publish more papers, do more of these demonstration projects. Hopefully it'll be a convincing body of evidence that will allow them then to move forward and and do something perhaps at the national level. So we're we're kind of in the discussion and uh, collecting evidence phase of of the situation. Very good. I want to thank you so much, Scott, for taking time with us today. For Feedstuffs, I'm Sarah Muirhead. Thanks to Feedstuffs publisher Sarah Muirhead and Dr. Scott D. of Pipestone Applied Research for a look at the next phase of research needed to keep hogs healthy and farms protected from these viral pathogens. You can read coverage of the latest research of animal health in the pages of Feedstuffs and by subscribing to the Feedstuffs Daily e-newsletter. Thanks again to Hogslat for sponsoring today's episode. Check out Hogslat's new 54-inch Infinity Fan. By utilizing advanced motor technology, this fan offers precise variable speed control with lower energy costs and reduced maintenance. As close as your local Hogslat store, or you can order online at hogslat.com. I'm Andy Vance, and you've been listening to Feedstuffs In Focus. If you want to hear more conversations about some of the big issues affecting the livestock, poultry, grain, and feed industries, Subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and so on. Or you can always check out our website, feedstuffs.com, for future episodes. Until next time, have a great day, and thanks for listening.